long and a big topic tonight. Already it's been big. Let's get into our uh, sermon this evening by beginning with some fictionalised stories. Sue Min met and married a guy from a Christian union, just like this one. Uh, he was involved in church, small group leader, got a great job after he finished uni. But soon after they were married, a whole other side of him came out. He was angry, demeaning, controlling, so jealous, like a different person. By the time she began to feel physically in danger, she'd lost so much sense of perspective and self-esteem, so, so much connection with family and friends, she couldn't see a way out. Trevor was identified in primary school, in after-school gym classes, at having something special. And he lost count of the number of hours and the amount of sacrifices and the thinking of even what he ate all the time uh, as he went further and further in gym and then particularly trampolining until a freak accident, something he'd done thousands of times, went wrong. And all those hopes of international open competition were gone forever. Who was he now? Raj and Summer married, later than a lot of their friends did, actually, and then they found it hard to have kids. Put a lot of pressure on their marriage, on their finances, on their friendships to an extent. But finally, they were going to have a baby. But late in the second trimester, things went wrong. The doctor, doctor tells them the baby most likely die in the womb, and she'll still have to carry it to term and give birth. Jeff had prayed and worked towards missionary work in Africa for almost as long as he could remember. Years of training, then further training, then support raising, then the sacrifices along the way, the things he happily gave away in order to serve his Lord. He finally began to feel like he was getting into the swing of things uh, in a gospel-hungry nation on the African continent, finally beginning to get a sense of the culture and... and connect with the language and then a military coup brings down their missionary activity in a sudden and violent way. Jeff finds himself back in Australia perplexed about what it was all for, traumatised, depressed and unemployable. Chao Xing went into middle age healthy and active, never smoked a cigarette in her life. But one day at a 40th birthday party, she started to feel a shortness of breath, a tightness in her chest. She thought it might have been a heart. And the doctors tell her it's lung cancer. But I don't smoke, she says. And so her whole life gets turned upside down. Keith had chronic fatigue syndrome, but he'd learned to manage it really well. He had excellent supports around him, church, GP, government help. But then a new party got in, the, the, the policies changed, his GP moved on and, and the new young doctor wrote some unhelpful things on the wrong forms and suddenly Keith lost all those supports he needed to thrive well and found himself stuck in a demeaning and confusing battle with some faceless creatures in government departments when he barely had the energy or the concentration span to handle it. And he noticed himself getting sicker and sicker and he has no idea how he's going to start paying the rent soon. I mean, I could keep going, couldn't I? 
Life is full of horrible things, horrible things. And then there are what sometimes could be called smaller things, loneliness, failure, disappointments, boredom even. And then there are enormous things, the future of our planet, the process of human-caused climate change with species extinctions, extreme temperatures in certain parts of our planet, rising sea levels impacting the most vulnerable populations in many cases, and a potential impact on tens of millions. How do you cope with it all? All this stuff that life throws at us, how, do you, how can you prepare for it? And how do we help each other when these waves crash over us? So Happyology is our, oh, we've got, that's, a, that's the phone number for questions, by the way, there, but Happyology is the series. Um, uh, we're talking about happiness, but you can't really talk about happiness, can you, in this world without talking about sadness, about unhappyology, you know? Um, it's an important thing to do. There's a place, not that we should do this all the time, but there is a place for pessimism, uh, for realism, for talking about the problems. Listen to this uh, passage from the Bible book of Ecclesiastes, this wise word. You want to be wise? Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than listen to the song of fools. Like crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So then, in this series we're looking at happyology. We're looking at well-being, meaning, community, hope. And our sermons run across these citywides. We've got one more of these citywides at the end of April on the topic of being yourself and being with others. And then we have a special combined thing with the Focus and Subbies International Student Groups at the end of May. But in our Happyology series, one more at this citywides. But then on our breakfast sessions, the next one's on Tuesday morning, we're actually looking at just at books of the Bible that particularly touch on themes of wisdom and happiness and meaning and living well. We did the book of Job. Uh, we're about to do the book of Psalms. We'll do Proverbs. And then this book, Ecclesiastes, um, in May. And then at our Uni Fellowship Engage event, you'll hear about in a sec, we will touch on some happyology stuff there too. So get a nice little package, happyology and unhappyology package. Um, uh, if you miss any of them, you can find them on the Facebook page, videos, or the podcast, or the website, and so on. But tonight, unhappyology, suffering well. It's not going to be everything, of course, that, say, the Bible says on the topic, or that we need to say on the topic generally, Certainly not conveying everything all the other disciplines of, of life and human well-being cover. Uh, the, the, the role of your GP, your counsellor, psychologist or psychiatrist, your mum, your dad, your friends, the philosopher, the poet, the personal trainer. Uh, other people play a part in our happiness and well-being. But scripture, God's word, the message of God to us, gives us a whole outlook. I mean, we've already heard that at work in the interview a whole framework, a, a, a worldview, a backbone that, um, that helps us through these things, a way to interpret it, guidance through it, and tools for survival and consolation for ourselves and for others. So a quick structure of tonight, how we'll look at things. Very briefly, I want to give an overview of the Bible's um, teaching about 
where the world came from, where it's going. Just quickly to give you that, that picture, because everything else sits within that, where the world comes from, where it's going. Then I want to just take some time to think about the different types of suffering, because there's not just one type of suffering. Yeah? There's, there's, a, there's a whole mix, and it's helpful to pull that apart a little bit. So having then looked at what the Bible says, where the world's come from, where it's going, and different types of suffering, then I'll give nine pointers how to suffer well, and uh, then we'll just reflect briefly on the opposites of those, how to suffer badly, how not to suffer. So then firstly, first of those, where's the world come from? Where's it going? Well, the Bible says that before the world, there's God from which all things came, from whom everything came. In the beginning, God, a loving, true, just, glorious, self-sufficient. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is the centre of everything else. Everything else has a centre, has a purpose, has a value. And God created the world, including us, humans. He made the world good, the Bible says, as a theatre of his glory, his creativity, his majesty, his goodness. The world was good. It's good to be here. And it's good that you're here. It's morally good, free from evil, violence, lies and lust. The Bible says humans were made to rule the world, but in a way of tending it like a garden, not just um, harvesting it uh, until it's barren dust. Yeah? To live in a loving cooperation with one another and joyful obedience to God. That is, the Bible says God who is good made a world that is good um, that wasn't meant to be a place of injustice and pain and misery. So then, where did injustice and pain and misery come from? God created a good world, but then the fall, as it is called, the human rebellion against God is where pain came from. Humans returning from God, and by rejecting God as creator and king, humans become evil. That's us. And with this evil that we brought into the world comes the stupidity, the corruption, the viciousness, the deceit, manipulation, wastefulness, abuse, betrayals, greed. The Bible tells us the world itself became cursed with that fall, that there was a new subjection to decay that comes with this human rebellion. And so we no longer rule the world and tend it perfectly in harmony. Instead, human experience with Life and the world and nature is like tug of war, of, of often being uh, us doing damage and then having damage done to us. Disease, natural disaster and so forth. Humans then and the world we were supposed to tend as a beautiful garden now becomes a place under the judgment of God, the disapproval of God. And we face the final judgment of God, that second death to come. The Bible tells of God creating a world of human fall and the judgment God gives on it, but then of God's promises of redemption. For the Bible's story is a story of rescue, of redemption. God promising to forgive, God promising to repair. And that's why Jesus comes. God come to earth as the rescuer, the repairer, the redeemer, the forgiver. His death was part of that rescue plan to buy forgiveness and pardon for guilty people 
and his resurrection gives new life with God, peace once more. So Jesus' death and his resurrection guarantee a new creation, the final hope. The world began with a good creation. God made the world good. Humans spoil it with sin. But the world will end with a new creation, a re-creation, with all things made new. So Christian hope is a hope for things made right again by God's merciful generosity, by Jesus' power and his saving work. So Christians now, as we've already been talking about, look forward. We're looking for. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to something. Yeah? A life without evil, without misery, without death ever again. So the, the, the Christian message in the light of where the world's come from, where it's going, is turn away from evil. Turn back to God. Accept the rescue that Jesus accomplishes and offers. Serve God with us as we wait for this new creation. That's the Bible's teaching about where the world's come from, where the world's going. Quick one, brief one, but gives you an idea. Therefore, that's really important because that tells us what's going on all around us and why, what to expect, what it means, where it all ends up. So as you and I live our lives, we're living our lives after creation and fall. Things were good, but they're now spoiled. And things can't be fully fixed in this life. And as we live our lives, you and I, we're living after the redemption that Jesus brought, but before the new creation. So God's made a way for forgiveness. There is hope and life begins now. Life with God, but hasn't yet come to fulfilment. So we live in expectation. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. What the Bible calls hope. Sure hope. Patient expectation. But we still live in a world full of suffering and evil. That's normal. In the Bible, that's normal. For people who are spiritual people, that's normal. It's expected. That's the teaching of the scriptures. But that kind of suffering is many and varied. So let's consider that then. Uh, the different types of suffering that we experience in a second heading. Different types of suffering. As we begin this section, now, I want to say that there are some things which are unpleasant that are a kind of suffering, but that are not evil in the same way as the rest of this list will be. There are some things we experience that have a kind of pain or even a kind of grief, um, but that aren't evil in themselves. A dear friend, uh, family gets a wonderful new job and moves out of your neighbourhood. It's terribly sad, but it's wonderful news for them and the family. Growing up is a weird kind of, I mean, like, I guess most people have seen the Toy Story movies. Oh my goodness, such tearjerkers. But a lot of the sadness is just Andy's older now, which is just normal. But it's so sad. Um, there's, there's something sad about growing up, and then when you have kids of your own, something sad about them growing up, although that's good. It's so sad. There's the grieving what could have been. As some people get towards my age, they go through this weird turmoil of sometimes not even just grieving bad things, but just other lives. You know, it's not, it's not that something evil's happened to you, it's just there's many lives you could have lived. It's a bit like the end of La La Land, if you've seen that movie. There's the, um, 
grieving of not being as beautiful or as fast or as successful as another person. It's not bad. You're great. God made you you, who's not as beautiful as someone else. And you're great that way. (laughs) And you're not as fast either or as tough and rich as Batman. But God made you you, and that's great the way God made you, but there's still a a kind of something There's grieving being different from a social norm or um, the challenges that just come with learning things, practising stuff, exercising. I hate exercising. Um, uh, (laughs) There's the sacrifice of giving up something good for something better. All of these things, they're unpleasant, but they're not evil in quite the same way the rest of the list is. Some of these things aren't evil, but they're part of life as finite beings. And our finitude was intended by God, it's not a bug, it's a feature. We're created dependent on him, not everything but something. All that stuff doesn't have to fully be fixed, but we learn to live and embrace the finitude that God has given to us. There's another kind of thing that has a sting that the Bible even calls a kind of dying that again isn't bad but actually is excellent. Dying to self. That's heavy terminology, right? Die to yourself. Whoa. Doing without, that seems like a huge cost. But when the Bible talks that way, it's speaking to you as an evil person. I love being evil. I have to give up being evil. It's a huge sacrifice. Oh, goodbye, getting brainlessly drunk so I vomit on my friend's bed. Oh no, I'm going to miss you getting drunk so I vomit on my friend's bed so much and all the bits of carrot in it. Oh, You're not actually saying goodbye to anything good (laughs) when you die to yourself. And and later on you might look back and go, as the Bible puts it, what benefit did I gain at that time from the things I'm now ashamed of? You know? Um, So there's that kind of stuff too. At the time it seems so hard. But in retrospect, it seems actually good riddance. However, there is a lot of suffering that is evil, that is awful, that is horrible. It's not just unpleasant, it's bad. There's the suffering that I bring on myself by doing bad things. It's awful. I'm to blame. But personal sin, personal folly and its consequences is not nice. I'm not okay, I'm broken, we're not okay, we're evil. So I do wrong things, inexcusably stupid things. And those wrong things hurt me and hurt others and uh, bring consequences, sometimes bring punishments. And so I can end up suffering in the world I'm in because of the lies I told, the crimes I got busted for, the mean things I said or did that ruined special friendships. The lust that twists me up, the greed that never satisfies, the ambition that corrupts and disappoints, the envy that makes me bitter, the addictions that degrade me. It's horrible. Self-inflicted, but horrible. Then there's the sin and the folly of others and the consequences of that sin on others. Because we're all interdependent, aren't we? We all... We affect one another. We're like dominoes or something. Um, Some things I do don't affect anyone, but lots of the things I do do affect others, sometimes indirectly, accidentally, as a flow-on effect. So people become the victim of the greed of others. Can't find a place to live because of the property portfolio 
of someone else, or the lust of others, or the lies of others, the jealousy of others, the laziness of others, the reckless stupidity of others, and so on. The thing someone does here doesn't just affect them, but it affects all these other people, innocent insofar as that was concerned. Do you see what I mean? Because you, I've just finished watching an amazing TV show called Chernobyl. Has anyone seen that? The Chernobyl about the, it's a heavy film, uh, not film, TV series, about this um, nuclear reactor disaster uh, in the Ukraine in the 1980s. And, and the steps of ambition and incompetence and folly um, and then self-protection of, of the, the government institutions that led to this disastrous um, uh, public health um, impact. Christians experience a particular kind of this uh, at the hands of those who hate God strongly and oppose the Christian message strongly, what's called persecution has happened in various waves throughout history and is happening in great intensity in various parts of our world today. And sometimes I'm not the direct victim, but the indirect victim. That is like a, a lazy bureaucracy indirectly causes suffering for people over here that has just got to do with, you know, so it's several steps removed it affects me. It might affect an economy in a place. You know, forms that were bad and then rules that weren't implemented and then someone who took a... And then suddenly over here, a, a, a town and its economy gets crippled by the flow-on effects. A greedy first world causes oppression in the third world. Historic injustices to peoples like the First Nations here in Australia sets up systemic inequalities that then people suffer from decades later, centuries later, even though it's not what's been done now, but it's the flow-on effects as well of what was done long before, while still then dealing with indignities and insensitivities that have been perpetuated. A breadwinner in a family is justly imprisoned and the other members of the family suffer greatly, and so on. That is, it's important to say, it's often not your fault. Like we're all guilty in general terms, but the suffering maybe you've experienced isn't your fault. Sometimes we contribute and they contribute, we all contribute, it's all a bit to blame. Yep, sometimes. Sometimes you're innocent, you're the innocent victim. Maybe you are, maybe you're thinking of something right now and going, yeah, actually. The weird thing is we get twisted so we start to feel guilty for things that we're the victim of. Sometimes it's all them, it's not you, it's all them. Sometimes you suffer and it's nothing you did wrong. We also suffer because this world and its whole being is now fallen in this subject to decay as the Bible describes it. And that includes even my body and my mind. There's a, there's a, a, a subjectedness to decay, a, a, a twistedness in the world. So our vulnerability to natural disaster and their effects, to wild and venomous animals, diseases, poisonous plants, our... Even our own bodies and, and our hormones and our, our minds affect the way we think and feel and live in all sorts of ways. We've inherited a cursed world under the judgment of God and so we suffer together as, as a human race that is guilty. Not every suffering is directly proportional to what I did or deserved. Um, not everything is a direct cause and effect for what I did or caused or deserved. It's part of this larger, interconnected system of the planet. 
And then it's worth mentioning as a category, although rare and more obscure for the person today, the specific temporal judgment of God. The specific temporal judgment of God. There's one version of it that's common, and that is when governing authorities rightly punish you. The Bible says that's a form of the judgment of God. If you're speeding and you get busted speeding and you have to pay a speeding fine, you're experiencing the temporal specific judgment of God through a just government at that point. You know, um, But the Bible also describes more direct supernatural specific punishments of God. But they're not the norm for people in every age. And it's very reckless to presume to read the mind of God. Think of political issue you're grumpy about, notice natural disaster, join the two together. Yeah? Um, but it is worth capturing that there is a kind of deserved suffering that's not just consequences, but is a kind of punishment. And, and that's like you know, criminal or civil fines and punishments, where it's not just a consequence, it's not like a natural consequence of speeding. It's a fine, it's not a consequence, it's a punishment. <laughs> It's an um, actual retribution on you for having been speeding. All of these kinds of punishment and pain and suffering and difficulty, uh, they can last for a long time or a short time. They can come in waves and clusters. And they're experienced differently because of who we are and how we experience these things as well. And those experiences can then have a long or a short tail in the process of coping and, and recovering and and living with those things differ as well. So in the light then of how the Bible tells us the world came from, where it's going, and considering just even this short, maybe oversimplified list of types of suffering, how do we, how do we wade through it, swim through it, gasp for air as it seems to pull us under? How do you suffer well? Well, I've got nine things. <laughs> And then we'll touch on each of those in reverse, how not to suffer well. So firstly, prepare for it. And you're here. You're preparing for it right now. You're setting yourself up for suffering well by thinking in advance. The wise man, remember, Ecclesiastes said, goes to the house of mourning, not the, the party of the fools. Taking the time to be bummed out by depressing things is good for you. Good for your well-being, actually. And can I just say this? So there's a range of churches here. Some of you might go to churches that are more on the let's kind of, like some of you are from the kind of grim church tradition. It always feels like a funeral at your church, maybe. But others of you, you're more like the rejoice in the Lord church. And there's, there's lots of great about that too. I'm not wanting to take away from what's good about it. But you know what? If you're always at church and youth group where it's always party, yay Jesus, you're not going to be helped. I know some of those churches do it well in small groups, don't they? And so in the small groups, you take the other stuff. But it's still worth bearing in mind, where are you being prepared for when it's not, yay, Jesus, what a blessing, but it's actually painful and hard and difficult? Where is that happening for you? Be prepared. Teach me, Lord, Moses prays in Psalm 90, to number my days. Make me wise. Speaking particularly about persecution, the Apostle Peter writes to some Christians and says, hey, in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when you suffer with this fiery trial as if something unusual was happening. Jesus himself said, hey, look, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. No student's great at the teacher. Psalm 
The worst thing that can happen for people is to live on a diet of mere optimism, thin motivationalism. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is to be fed a kind of prosperity gospel. If you just have faith and believe and claim the promises, everything will be blessing. If you just obey these rules or principles, you'll enjoy wealth and riches and happy marriages and great sex and spiritual joy and fruitful ministry. Because if you live in that world of motivational optimism, then when it goes bad, it becomes, why me? What did I do? Why? Where were you? How dare you? Be prepared. Live in the real world. And when it hits you, it's okay, it's spiritual, it's biblical to lament. We'll probably hit on this, I bet, on Tuesday morning as we look at the Psalms. The Bible records many, many, many Psalms, not of praise and worship and delight, but of lament. Job, Jeremiah, the Psalms. It is healthy, it is right, it is biblical, it is spiritual, it is Christian to lament, to mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12 verse 15 says, because it assumes that Christians will mourn. It's right to mourn and join them in it. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, yeah, John eleven thirty five. Jesus, facing the horror of death and the outrage of death, death of a friend, wept. It's right to lament. Thirdly, search your heart when you suffer. It's not necessarily your fault. You heard me say that. I hope you heard me say that. It's not necessarily your fault what's happened to you. And even if, uh, if you've got a part to play that the scale of the impact of something may not be a direct punishment or some direct... It may be senseless from a human point of view. And yet still, search your heart. Because sometimes when bad things happen to me, it is my fault. Because you know what? Why is this happening to me? I've heard real dirtbags say that with real sincerity, with honest, honest to goodness, innocence on their face. Why is this happening to me? And you're just standing there looking at them going, dirtbag, do you have any idea how obvious it is that this is happening to you? Oh, it's so unfair. Uh, yeah, not so much. You might be a bit that, you're a bit dirtbag too, maybe. I'm a bit dirtbag. I need to sometimes stop and go, hang on a second. Is there something I've contributed to all of this that I need to learn from what I've brought upon myself? Why is this happening to me? It's not just something a righteous sufferer prays. Uh, sometimes the evil, self-pitying complainer prays that prayer too. Why is this happening to me? Search myself, I might be at fault. And even if I'm not to blame, I could still say, God, are you teaching me something here? What work might you be doing in my life? We'll come back to that. A career failure, for example. Something I hoped for, didn't work out like I wanted. That's really disappointing. But am I learning something about careerism and ambition and where I've put my hope? Maybe, maybe. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks to us in our conscience and he shouts at us in our suffering. Suffering can be God's megaphone to get our attention. Fourth, seek support from others. You're not alone. You weren't made to be alone. It's not good for people to be alone. We get strength from consolation from others. Their presence, their kindness, their little kindnesses, their words of understanding and comfort and wisdom at the right time. They're identifying with us. 
in general terms, just by the by, men in general seem to really suck at that, at least men in the West, and it causes particular kinds of problems for men across their lifetime, suicide being one of those. Men just aren't good at making and keeping friends. There's a whole man thing, isn't there, about man has no feelings, man just has tools, that, all that kind of stuff. I mean, like, we do have feelings, like hungry and tired, but... <laughs> <laughs> and we, we don't get good at sharing our worries, our fears, our insecurities, and being open with each other, and all that kind of stuff, yeah? And so we slowly isolate, and as life gets busy, just get on with it, mate, just get on with it, you know, and, and all that, <laughs> in that voice, it's always that voice. <laughs> um, Oh, it's just as you do, as you do, you know, with the boys, getting on with the boys. Um, and you're more and more, so when things go wrong, who do you talk to? No, open up, share, talk about deep things. Be man enough to talk about where you don't feel man enough. Mourn with those who mourn, seek out those you can mourn with. Check out this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a, really, it's a great one, this one. It describes the amazing dynamic of how we, as we suffer, can then come to comfort others as they suffer. It's really, really quite special. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you shared in our suffering, so also you shared in our comfort. Isn't that awesome? My suffering can enable me to comfort someone else. Their suffering equips them to be able to bring comfort to me. Even better, God himself comforts us like this. Like it's awesome enough that God, our creator, speaks as our creator words of promise and comfort and presence. But it's more than that, isn't it? In the Christian gospel, God became human, became one of us. There's an old folk song called What, is God? what If God Was One of Us. It's a really lovely song, dwelling upon that stuff. Um, he sympathises with us. Don't get all junked up with the difference between sympathy and empathy. No one really knows the difference. They're basically the same. God comes and cares about what we're going through, has experienced suffering, knows the challenges of temptation, is one of us, can identify with us, can feel for us, and so console us. And that was why we had those readings all through Hebrews. Flesh and blood like we are, shared in our humanity, not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, empathise with us, can sympathise with us in our temptations, in our sufferings, in our struggles. A gentle high priest, a faithful high priest, a perfect high priest above the heavens who, in loud cries and tears, cried out to God. Trust God. Here's the fifth. A bit of tip on suffering well. Trust God. 
God is in control even when things are terrible. God is in control. Even when we don't know how and why. Remember we began where the Bible begins that at the centre of the universe is God. God of love, God of truth, God of justice. I don't get it fully. We looked at the book of Job at our last breakfast sessions sermon. It's on the Facebook videos and the podcast and stuff. That's the story of the book of Job, except the areas of mystery. I'm not God. God's God. I'm not God. But I can still trust him. Here's how Romans chapter 9 puts it. It's a bit blunt in chapter 9, but we'll have a look at chapter 8 after that, which is a bit nicer in the way it speaks about it. But here's how how it gets put in uh, chapter 9, verse 19 of the book of Romans. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Who am I to talk back to God? God's God, I'm not God. God knows, I don't know. Trust him. And as chapter 8 puts it, in wonderful terms, we groan with inexpressible words when we don't understand what's going on. And the Spirit groans with us because he understands what's going on. And yet we know, even if we can't see the way there, we know, verse 28 of Romans 8, that in all things God does work for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. The Bible says you can trust God. God is good. God is just. God is true. God is loving. He's a rock. Even as as you stand on it, the, the waves are all over your feet, so you can't see the rock. I love that old cheesy Footprints Christian poster thing. I know it's cheesy, but I love it. Walking along the beach, and whenever it's hard, you know, me and God walking on the beach, but whenever it's hard, there's one set of footprints, not two. Where were you, God? I was carrying you, God says. <laughs> it's cheesy. But there's something great in that that I don't see, I don't realise at the time. That God knows, God is good, God is loving, God is just, God is true. My grace is sufficient for you, he said to the Apostle Paul, who prayed like Abby prayed again and again, please take it away, take it away, take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. The old um, evangelist and preacher Charles Spurgeon tells a story of that. He was going through a rough time. He, He became a really famous preacher at a very young age. And I know people hate on celebrities. They go, oh, who's another celebrity complaining about how hard it is to be a celebrity? Oh, my goodness, it would be hard to be a celebrity, wouldn't it? Have some compassion, won't you? Imagine that, people watching everything you do. Harry and Megan having a toothbrush today, green toothbrush. Ooh, you know, it'd be a horrible, horrible experience being famous. Um, awful thing, careful what you wish for. Um, and uh, uh, he became a famous preacher at like 19. So everyone was gossiping about his toothbrush when he was 19. And, and then someone played a prank in a huge me- mega church meeting. They shattered out fire, caused a panic. People were killed in the crush to escape the building. Caused massive depression for the guy. He once tells a story about riding um, to, to a location to preach and, and, and pondering on his troubles, on his worries, on his doubts. And this verse came, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. And he rode along and you know, did the kind of, you know, the, hmm, hmm, you know, that, that's a good verse. And then suddenly started laughing. And then went, I should think it would be, Lord. <laughs> Your grace, eternal Lord, is sufficient for me, little Charles Spurgeon. I reckon it probably would be sufficient. It's a nice moment to realise God is enough. God is more than enough for you. God is the infinite God of love and truth, the creator God, the saviour God. His grace is sufficient for me. 
or Horatio Spufford lost his two-year-old son and was ruined financially by the Chicago fire of 1871. Sent his wife and daughters ahead of him to meet him in England for some ministry work there and all four daughters died in a shipwreck en route. His wife survived alone. And in response, he could write, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. I reckon at the end of the sermon we might have a go at singing that without accompaniment for the Southern Presbyterians among us. So if we could look that up and we'll throw it on the screen at the end of the sermon, that'd be nice. Enough of us know it, I think. Um, accept your lot is the next one, and, and Spufford speaks of it here. When I suffer, accept my lot. It's a motif in scripture. In Job, Job says, hey, shall I, I came out of my mother's womb naked. I'll depart from this world naked. Praise the Lord, whatever he gives or takes away. Shall I take good from the Lord and not bad? Praise be the Lord. You can serve God in any circumstance. Your life is valuable and meaningful and useful and good, no matter what the circumstances, except the lot that God has given you at the moment. doesn't mean you can't pursue change, social advancement or medical cure or political advocacy or just getting a diary and planning ahead. It doesn't mean you can't change things, but your proactiveness can only go so far. And there is a point sometimes when people say, you know what, trying to fix things more is actually not going to make me happier right now. It's going to make me more anxious, more agitated, more stressed. Maybe for a season at least, I need to just accept Seventh, let suffering do its work on you. Great theme in scripture. Jesus says in John 15, those vines that remain in me that I prune become even more fruitful. Romans chapter 5, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, character, hope. Hebrews chapter 12 says, you know, when we face hardships, God disciplines us as his sons, as his daughters. It's not pleasant. No, discipline's pleasant at the time. But legitimate sons and daughters are parented by their, by their father. God disciplines us to produce, Hebrews says, a harvest of righteousness. James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many and various kinds, because the testering of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 1 Peter chapter 1, we face trials and sufferings and all kinds of trials. They've come so that our faith of more value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. They're all memory verses for me. Um, and they're good ones, aren't they? Why don't you remember those? <laughs> or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. There's such great stuff, isn't there, for us to dwell on here. 
Suffering works all kinds of good in you. It does. Makes me patient. Makes me more humble. Makes me more realistic. Makes me sympathetic. Makes me compassionate. Makes me considerate. Makes me more open. Makes me a better listener. Makes me more hopeful. Makes me content. Makes me joyful and thankful in the Lord. Purifies my faith of mixed motives so I treasure God as the greatest treasure of all. It matures me. Now, it's not always this, and it's not only this. Sometimes suffering really traumatises and messes with us. And so, actually, it seems to set us back. We know there are certain kinds of conditions that do that, don't they? They seem to set you back because of what it does to your your body and your brain. Um, It's not always easy and linear, but it often is. It often is. Perhaps it mostly is that suffering does this work. Tim Keller, in his book on suffering describes suffering as a gym or a furnace, a gym that strengthens us, a furnace that refines away impurities. John Piper makes a similar point with his book, Don't Waste Your Cancer, although I find the title in poor taste. Um, That's what he's getting at, is that even in a cancer diagnosis, good things can be worked in your life. Again, in Tim Keller's book, he says, who doesn't want to know themselves better, their strengths and weaknesses? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be able to help other people really well? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be wise and to know God more deeply? Well, guess what? One of the chief ways that that happens in this life is through suffering. I don't pray suffering for you. I don't think that's what the Bible says. But I do pray for maturity for you knowing that one of the ways God will bring that about is often through suffering. Eight, confront the sins of others. Sometimes when you suffer, you're suffering because the sins of others. And the right thing to do as we suffer is to speak. Speak the truth to power. Say no to the abuser. Whistleblow the corrupt. It's not unsubmissive to do that. It's not traitorous to the team or the group or the ministry to do that. It's not unfaithful or judgmental to speak up about wrong. It's brave, it's good, it's biblical. It's holy. Ephesians chapter 5. Don't go into the deeds of darkness, but expose them. Shine a light on the evil deeds of darkness. We mustn't misuse the Bible's teaching on enduring and persevering under trial when instead we should highlight the other biblical theme of speaking up against injustice like the great prophets of the scriptures. We need to be good at doing this. We need to be good at listening to and taking seriously those who take the step to do this. Confront the sin of others. And last of all, Dwell on the hope to come. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Consider Jesus, as um, Micah read for us, Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Dwell upon God's promises. Dwell on the future hope. Dwell on these things. The 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, our problem is often we listen to ourselves too much. 
We should be talking to ourselves more. <laughs> Talk to yourselves more. Like in Psalm 42 and 43. Oh, my soul, why are you downcast on oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. Trust in him. Don't be unprepared when you suffer. Don't repress your laments when you suffer. Don't isolate yourself when you suffer. Don't become defensive and self-justifying when you suffer. Don't give in to defiance and doubt when you suffer. Don't foster resentment and self-pity when you suffer. Don't harden up for the same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. Be the wax, not the clay. <laughs> Don't stay silent before injustice when you suffer. Don't dwell on the past and fixate in the present when you suffer. Look to the future. Look to the hope to come. And it will be well with your soul. Have I got the words? Can you give it a go? And Dave, you've got a decent voice. Can you even set a note for us? You've got a karaoke, do you? Okay, great. Excellent. Would you guys like to stand and we'll sing this song? If you know the tune, if you don't, you'll pick it up pretty quick, I reckon. But just please mute my microphone out of mercy. on the floor then stick your hand up and I'll run around and bring the mic to you the other option is if you so wish text your questions through to the number up on the screen and they will be read out but to start off with are there any questions from the floor about anything that Mikey said or anything else you've been thinking about suffering in your own life Um, Mikey, you talked about dying to self, I think, near the beginning. Um, what does that mean? I know that you kind of explained it, but I didn't quite understand. Self in the Bible is actually ultimately talks about a really profound spiritual reality that God does in us by his spirit. Um, uh, we are so united with Christ in Christ's work, um, the Bible says, that the self that we were before in respect to God's judgment and in respect to the devil and in respect to the world, that self, it's as if that self is dead and gone with Jesus and I made new, alive, a new self with um, Jesus as he rose from the dead. You see that in Colossians 3 or Ephesians chapter 2, um, in Romans as well and so on. Um, and so it's on a fundamental level, it's, it means that. It means actually what God has done, that he's, he's made us as if like a new person, um, refreshed, reborn, renewed. Um, uh, uh, you know, with, um, there's a transfer of status and also then a change of being because God's spirit is in us. But what it means from an active moral point of view is the Bible then says, since you've died with Christ, since you're alive with Christ, now put to death those things that belong to the old you. And so it's that process of, of, of then actively saying, that's not me anymore in my self-identity, um, through to I don't talk that way anymore, um, I don't love those things anymore, I love different things, and so on. And so it's beginning to do that process of kind of like, I don't know, you know putting the stake through the heart of the vampire of lust and lies and anger and saying, that's not me anymore. Yeah, yeah, so it's that process of dying to the old me. Um, gaining hope through suffering. Could you uh -huh. expand?
expand on that a little bit more. It sounds, I guess it sounds kind of like a contradiction. How do you gain hope? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we're used to knowing that some people give up on God and give up on hope through suffering. But it's also true that a lot of people who suffer a great deal have very deep faith. And some people even come to faith through suffering. So there's two things that can happen. You know, I can abandon my faith or deepen or come to faith through suffering, you know. Um, the, the way that Romans puts it is that um, suffering produces this perseverance in me that I have to hang on. And I'm ha- as you hang on, you, go, you start to say, for how long? <laughs> Are we there yet? And so that's, I think, what the dynamic is there of, oh, this is hard, but I'm hanging in there. And the longer I hang in, the more I, I'm no longer just going, well, it'll be over soon. She'll be right. You know, you know. But instead it becomes, um, oh, my goodness, how long will it be? And then I, I long all the more. And then that can then sustain me all the more. So that's the kind of Romans 5 thing. Um, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 1 also speaks about uh, hope as this new birth into a living hope uh, through Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for me. And I'm now being kept shielded by God's power um, for this salvation to come in the last time. And I'm rejoicing in this even though now I'm suffering by all kinds of trials. So I think it's that idea of going... That's where I'm headed, and that's what keeps me holding on. So my whole life is lived with a kind of a big arrow pointing that way. Yeah. I think there was a question in here. Yeah. Um, uh, it says in James 1, verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kinds. And I was just wondering, like, how would you do that? Because, like something might come upon you that's like a real like trial like how do you actually consider it a joy yeah yeah so the consider word is a i mean it's a really great question that one the consider word is like a count or assess it to be or weigh it up as imagine you're like i don't know let's just imagine you ended up getting a job at mona and then there's like uh you know a glass case with just like sort of some some human feces is in it comes into the room it's just gross and weird and you wonder why you accepted this job but then someone says this is actually worth five million dollars because it's art then you consider it art (laughs) even though your reaction to it emotionally in every other way you just go no I I think it's literally poo that's all it is but but it actually you have to count it you have to account it as something that you don't realize now that's a silly example but there is a sense in which in the moment it's pain it, it, it feels bad I feel bad I don't feel happy not positive affect in the sensations of my, my body and my mind, um, but I can count it as joy because I understand the hope and I also understand what it can do in my life now. So there's this, this accounting work that we do as Christians that we're, and we, bec- we become wise as we get better at doing that, yeah. But it means that we have a weird thing of going, you know, I'm, I know I've got joy in God and peace in God even though I just feel turmoil and sadness in my body, in my brain. But I still do have peace in God and joy at the same time. And that's, Colossians describes our life as hidden with Christ in God. And I think that's one of the ways we experience that existentially. Yeah. I think we might have to wrap it up there. Sorry, guys, we still have questions. Um, but uh, we'll, Mikey, we can continue on kind of off the stage. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Right. We can yeah. totally continue on off the stage. If you still have questions afterwards, feel free to hunt Mikey down. He'll be hanging around. 